0: You're listening to Development Matters, a podcast of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC. MCC is an independent United States international development agency whose mission is reducing poverty through economic growth. In this inaugural relaunch of MCC's podcast, MCC Deputy Chief Executive Officer Alexia Latourtu sits down for part one of her discussion with Dr. Donald Kabaruka, co-chair of the United Nations Secretary General's High-Level Panel on Internal Displacement, to discuss the effects of COVID-19 on African economies and the prospects for an economic recovery. A Rwandan economist and former finance minister, Dr. Kabaruka is the seventh president of the African Development Bank. He is credited for expanding the reach and impact of AFDB, Africa's premier financial institution, during his two terms as president. Dr. Kabaruka is currently the African Union High Representative for financing, the Peace Fund and COVID-19 response. He is a member of the board of trustees of several organizations and think tanks, including the Rockefeller Foundation, Center for Global Development, the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, the Brookings Institution, and the London School of Economics. He serves on the International Advisory Council of Standard Chartered Bank and the co-chair of Council on State Fragility. He was also nominated in 2017 to chair the panel on the third external evaluation of the International Monetary Fund. Since retiring from the African Development Bank, He is chairman and managing partner of Southbridge, a financial investment advisory firm, which he co-founded. He was elected in 2019 as chair of the board of the Global Fund to Fight HIV AIDS, TB and Malaria.
1: Thank you, Dr. Kabuka, for joining the Millennium Challenge Corporation's Development Matters podcast. This is our inaugural relaunch of the podcast, and we are honored that you are our first special guest. The first episode of the post-podcast coincides with Africa Day, May 25th, which marks the foundation of the Organization of African Unity, which, of course, is now the African Union. Dr. Kabaruka, I have watched you work tirelessly with conviction, unapologetic frankness, great precision, deep compassion, and unwavering passion with and for your beloved continent. A very well welcome indeed.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Alexia. I'm glad to be your first guest and to be doing so on Africa Day. Uh, Really exciting. Thank you.
1: Dr. Kabaruka, let's jump right in. I would like to start with the topic of COVID 19, a pandemic that highlights both how interconnected we are as a world and how much more there is to to do to build a more equal world. At the summit of the financing of African economies just a few days ago, and I think you're just back from there, Dr. Kabaruka, COVID-19, I understand, dominated much of the conversation. There are health impacts with, according to official tolls, at least 4.7 million people that have contracted COVID-19 and over 130,000 people died. And of course, the rollout of vaccines is an issue that is top of mind and that of course the world needs to grapple with. And then there are the economic impacts. Impacts that threaten to unravel years of development gains. Recent economic forecasts from the IMF estimate GDP contracted by 2.6% across the continent in 2020. And last fall, the World Bank estimated that impacts of the pandemic in Africa could drive up to 40 million people into extreme poverty, erasing recent progress. As I believe you've recently noted, for the first time in 30 years, many African countries will experience some degree of recession. And Africa does not have the means to deliver the types of economic recovery packages we're seeing in richer countries. And only about $33 billion of the 650 billion in special drawing rights approved by the IMF is for African countries. Dr. Kabaruka, please share with us how you think about both the short term and long-term impacts of COVID-19 in Africa, particularly in the more fragile and at-risk economies. What challenges do you see for the continent emerging from the pandemic? And what are the prospects and potential drivers for renewed economic growth over the coming years?
2: Alexia, thank you very much um, for this opportunity. I think your analysis uh, and the exposé of the impact of the pandemic on Africa is uh, to the point. I wanted to to say the following, uh, four points. The first thing we've learned from this uh, pandemic is how poorly the world was prepared. Both rich and poor countries. Uh, There's some degree of preparedness, but obviously it has uh, turned out to be Wolfly inadequate. And the reason uh, the pretendness was uh, poor is not hard to fathom. It is because pandemics are a problem for poor people in poor countries. And therefore, the architecture uh, for pandemics is always tilted to the view. It will be OK for the rich countries. Our health systems will cope. It will be an issue for low income countries. Uh, as you can see from HIV AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, they have gone from being uh, pandemics which threatened lives in the global north and south to become an endemic problem in the global south, left essentially to philanthropy, and development organizations. That is the problem. Unfortunately, COVID has shattered that myth. However, I do fear that once the global North has vaccinated a critical mass of its people, it could be that COVID uh, could become an endemic problem in the global South, simply because uh, we've not been able to access enough um, vaccine for protection. So that is my first lesson. And that is linked to the second lesson. We have found out that actually science and the private sector working together, and to some degree public sector, science is able to provide solutions. Uh, COVID um, testing kits, vaccines uh, have become available fairly quickly. But, again, that is the second lesson. These are available only to some and not others. They're available to countries in the north, to people in the north, not in the global south. So science has given a solution. But the solution is available only to some and not others. And that is an important consideration for people working in development. Uh, Where do we brought the line between global health security and global health equity. At the beginning of this crisis, it was terribly difficult to find uh, materials for testing uh, for COVID. It was very difficult. Uh, the list of that is available. It was available, again, to rich countries, but not to, to many of us. The same now is happening for vaccines. Uh, countries in the north are gearing up to vaccinate a critical mass of the population here in Africa was still at 2 percent. COVAX, the international mechanism which is supposed to provide vaccines for low-income countries, is falling short of resources and vaccines. That is the second lesson which has got long-term ramifications. And the third lesson we've learned is that actually Contrary to what people thought, the low-income countries like many countries in Africa were better prepared for this pandemic than the global. Better prepared in the sense that there was a recognition that our health systems could not cope with such a massive uh, disruption. And therefore, very early on, very quickly, they put in place mechanism uh, to prevent this pandemic becoming a disaster. So, uh, lockdowns, uh, the subject national traffic, and so on, even while recognizing that the economic cost would be very, very high. So Africa, in terms of preparedness for the pandemic, did the right thing. But the economic costs, as I've just enumerated, has been very, very high. So there was pre- preparation at Africa CDC. Center for Disease Control, medical platform, Envoys, of which I was uh, one of them. So there was an acceptance that we need to prevent this pandemic becoming a heterocom. But this has got a high economic cost because in many of our countries, uh, 80% of employment is the informal sector. Half of GDP is from the informal sector and therefore lockdowns Disruption economic activity has got a very high price. And that is what we have paid, the high price for uh, preparedness. The fourth lesson is really one fundamental for all of us working development. We have all been advocates of free trade, globalization, and the rest of it. The idea was the more you join into the global supply chains, the wealthier, the safer you'll be, not this time. Because suddenly, those who produce vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, have imposed export bounds. So what has happened to free trade? What has happened to globalization? What does it imply for the future in terms of reliance on the global supply chains for our collective uh, security? The implications of this, and the first point I made, is one now which is pushing people to think, we can't rely on essential therapeutics, diagnostic vaccines being made in a few countries. And therefore, all of us should now try to get some degree of uh, home security for, for the supplies. And now, it will happen not tomorrow, but in the medium term, I expect this to happen. Uh, Not all countries will have the infrastructure, the regulatory framework to manufacture drugs and vaccines, but the pressure would be there for that to happen because of the lessons we have learned now. And the last lesson, uh, Alexia, is about what I call the huge dichotomy and what Larry Summers has called the risk of the great divergence. And we put it this way. Between 1945 and the turn of the millennium, uh, many countries in the world, in Asia and Latin America, in Europe, North America, were converging globally in terms of uh, economic opportunities. There was one continent, Africa, which was not yet converging with the rest of the world. And a few countries in the Caribbean and uh, Central America. But beginning at the millennium, Africa began to converge with the rest of the world. It was the second fastest growing continent after Asia. From a low base, there was limited transformation, a lot of issues around inequality, but it was beginning to converge. So the fear now is that we could now begin another phase of a divergence. Why? Because countries in the north, in the rich world, have ability to put out their fiscal stimulus, massive monetary instruments to repair the damage and return the economies of growth. And it it's working, as you can see, if you look at asset prices, to equity prices, to commodity market markets, it seems to be, to be working. And I think as soon as uh, people have been vaccinated in the global north, that will continue. In the south, countries don't have the well with either in terms of fiscal space, or monetary instruments for this kind of stimulus. And therefore, I want to end by saying that in 2008 and 2009 global financial crisis, under the leadership of President Obama, uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown, uh, at the G20 in London, you could see the ambition uh, to repair the damage of the global financial crisis, uh, which was ambitious, collective, and covering all parts of the world. This time around, for the second crisis, I don't see that level of ambition. I don't see that level of uh, collective action. We have gone back to every country for themselves. The instruments being put out there are fairly modest. And therefore, it is a challenge uh, for Africa. Uh, At this conference you are mentioning, uh, there was a proposal to say, look, okay. we have been able to come to closure on the issue of issuing uh, a significant amount of special drawing rights, you know, tripling from 210 to 650. good decision. But a lot of it will go to rich countries. Uh, Africa is all well get about 34 billion dollars out of the 650 billion dollars. And of the 34 billion dollars, sub-Saharan Africa will get about 34 billion dollars. We play inadequate. And a proposal on the table, which was to say, since countries in the north are able to, uh, to print money, so to speak, to create fiscal space, can we reallocate those uh, special drawing rights from countries like the G7, who don't need them at all, to uh, low-income countries through a mechanism that goes to be discussed? That is on the table. I suspect it will take a long time. I suspect there will not be enough agency to push it through. But that would be, in my view, if it happened at the right quantum, the equivalent of what we did in 2008. And the idea on the table was, look, these African countries have a gap of about $250 billion over the next two and a half to three years. Can we at least find the equal to uh, that quantum and that is on the table i hope it works i hope it uh, obtains the support but this what i would say is what we face in terms of lessons learned in terms of the kind of response we need and mm-hmm. hoping that uh are the coming then g7 g20 there'll be enough uh will, political will that is to push this through so that Africa can return to growth and thereby provide the additional stimulus that the world economy requires. So this is to say on COVID, uh, Alexia.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kabaruka. I think you've outlined really important lessons. Um, in some of them, there is great hope and opportunity. You mentioned how the private sector and science combined did deliver solutions, but you also had a lot of sobering notes in your key lessons Notably, around the issue of equity, of benefiting from some of those opportunities. I'd like to follow up, Dr. Kabaruka, on your point about ambition and fear of divergence as opposed to convergence between uh, the global north and the global south. So, you've uh, pointed to one opportunity, which is if certain countries are willing to reallocate their special drawing routes to sub Saharan Africa. Do you have any other specific messages uh, for the development community, for um, the countries of the North, of how they could demonstrate greater, greater ambition for indeed Africa to be put back on the path of growth?
2: So if you listen to, to public statements of leadership in the global North, um, nobody would disagree that uh, global health security can only be achieved through global health equity. Nobody would disagree. But I want to put you, Alexia, that uh, uh, several decades back, HIV-AIDS was seen as a threat to global health security around the world. But as soon as science provided uh, solutions, it no longer was a threat to global health security. It became an issue of global health equity. It became a problem for poor countries. And therefore, the energy which went set to, regard to the Global Fund was basically from the philanthropic and development organizations. In other words, it is something which is no longer seen as a threat to rich people in rich countries. It's an issue for poor countries. And therefore development organizations and philanthropy. What I'm putting into that, I fear the same for COVID. Uh, I fear the same for COVID, uh, that you can already face signs of it in terms of lack of access to vaccines. You can see the arguments around the intellectual property rights, uh, and therefore I fear they will go from a pandemic to an endemic. Now, what should the, the message be for the global North? Uh, it is a simple message, uh, a straightforward one. We have made a mistake, which has caused the global economy a lot, by not preparing across the world for this pandemic. It should not happen again. And for it not to happen, it means we have to work collectively as a global entity. It can't be that you will vaccinate people in the north and forget people in the south, and therefore you simply have resolved the problem. That will simply compound the problem even further. Secondly, for the last 30 years, uh, or even maybe in the last decade, what has really pushed the global economy uh, where it is today, has been the fact that Asia, Africa, and of Latin America have been growing very strongly. And that pushed uh, all the boats uh, up. And I think it will be quite uh, the same logic. The more you can get the Global South growing again, the more you can get African economies growing again at 6 7%, the better it is for everyone, from an economic viewpoint, social viewpoint, even a security viewpoint. But I fear there's not enough uh, machinery in the current architecture. To think around this collective need for saying if the global south is growing, if Africa's economies are growing, it's good for all of us, it's good for global health security, for security as a whole, and so on. And therefore, I do hope sincerely, that uh, the first signal we would like to see is A on what happens with the special drawing rights. It will cost countries in the G7 only 0.5% of the difference between the SDLs they should hold and those that have been given away, 0.5%. But if we're able to come to a critical quantum, say to $50 billion equivalent, that will be a huge stimulus for the South. It is such a low-hanging fruit, which is not technically complicated, but it requires a paradigm shift in the way we think about. Uh, what to do now. Uh, look at how much the United States is putting there uh, on the stimulus packages. Just think about that several years ago. To the extent where some economists in the US begin to think, "What well, is too much. It's even inflationary. Same in Europe, same in Japan. Look at the level of, uh, of energy behind that. We need the same thinking uh, in the South. Not a little initiative here Another initiative here. And therefore, I hope through the development organizations like the one you work for, like the one I used to work for, these organizations could uh, come together in an ecosystem which will make this happen. There's a proposal that some of these SDRs should be deployed through organizations uh, which are responsible for international development. I think it's a very good idea. The IMF, the World Bank, regional banks, and other organizations. And then together, by leveraging those resources in the markets, we can kick back small businesses to life. We can repair the damage done, and thereby uh, providing the wherewithal uh, for for jobs and opportunities. But I should also add that the opportunities now for manufacturing are not simply vaccines. but all sorts of uh, diagnostics, therapeutics we need in the South is an opportunity we should seize quickly. I think the argument about intellectual property rights uh, really should be in the context of what we decided in 2001 uh, around HIV drugs in 2005 about what are the conditions under which you could waiver temporarily, under some conditions, intellectual property rights to allow other countries to manufacture this stuff. And I think development organizations would have a big role to play. And second, I hope international development organizations rethink seriously the whole issue of uh, social safety nets uh, in low-income countries. How do you design them for resilience? Because if you look around the countries in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Central America. The damage to the substratum of the economy is real. And in countries where the social safety nets, welfare systems are not as robust in the North as in human suffering around the lands you have outlined are real. And therefore, we need to rethink, so what does it take, actually, to provide a resilient uh, social safety nets in case you of these massive shocks like we have seen uh, in the case of COVID?
1: Thank you, Dr. Cabrera, and I think your strong and clear messages about health first and sorting the the, the health systems issues first, which will then allow really um, for work on economic growth to happen are quite quite clear. Um, I think also looking to the whole system, the whole multilateral system to collectively work um, is another clear message um, that that we hear um, as well and comes through very, very, very strongly. And I think the point on resilience around social safety nets also resonates um, very, very strongly. Um, And the idea of reboosting growth through supporting of SMEs, jobs, livelihoods, I imagine that investment in infrastructure will also have to be part of the equation as well, um,
2: Dr. Kabaruka. Totally agree, Alexia. I I think that uh, this last decade has shown two things. We had the first shock, the global financial crisis. 10 years, hence on, we have the global uh, pandemic. In between, we had this huge level of hope and ambition around SDGs. This is quite an amazing decade from the point of, so we have this uh, liberal system, uh, globalization, and in 2008, in 2009, suddenly we saw the limits to globalization. Uh, what was the upside, what was the downside, and how to handle that. And I think through the G20, uh, that lesson was learned and a number of solutions were provided to repair the global financial system to make it more resilient. We have not; it resolved everything, but that was quite an important lesson. Halfway through, the world comes together at the UN and have this huge ambition for the sustainable development goals. I think what this pandemic has done is now a reality check on what will it take now to achieve the sustainable development goals given what we now know about economic resilience, about health, about equity. For me, this will be probably the most important thing for international development organizations uh, to reflect upon. Those who are left behind by globalization, uh, the uh, dysfunctionality around some of the articulation around the global institutions showed its weaknesses in 2008, 2009. Now, along the way, we thought we had a solution. But now, we find that here is Another global shock. Who knows what is coming next? Who knows what the follow next? And therefore, the global multilateral architecture probably is up for, for some degree of reengineering. Now, will there be enough energy behind this? I don't know, and I'm not sure.
1: Well, I certainly can say from MCC's perspective, uh, Dr. Kavaruka, that there are, you know, with the leadership team here, we're having really deep discussions around the kind of growth that is needed to really be durable and resilient. And for us, very much that means growth that's inclusive, to your point on equity. It means growth that is job rich. Um, And there, I think working with the private sector is critical. And it also means for us growth that is sustainable um, because the fate of people and planet, we believe are interlinked and there's a lot of research about pandemics of the future um, and, 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 and climate change that I think in terms of your caution of preparedness is worth thinking about as well. But thank you very much, Dr. Kabaruka for um, you know a very, very uh, good conversation on thinking through uh, the impacts of COVID, what also led us to where we are and what the future holds. And uh, you've talked about trade a fair bit already. And I wanna I would like to come back to this issue of trade um, with you as well.
0: Implementation of the African Continental Free Trade Area began earlier this year. As the world's largest free trade area in terms of the number of participating countries, the African Continental Free Trade Area presents a critical opportunity to stimulate trade, investment, and jobs across Africa for economic growth that helps lift people out of poverty. In part two of their discussion, Alexia and Dr. Kabaruka discuss what it will take to deliver on this promise. Thank you for listening to Development Matters. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you prefer. And to learn more about MCC, please visit www.mcc.gov.